0: good afternoon and welcome to deep in history this is marcus rodi your co-host for this program and my my other co-host is uh, Monsignor Jeffrey Steenson. He's joining us from—you're up at the cabin in upper Minnesota, right, Monsignor? That's right. Uh huh. Well, yeah. thank you for joining us again on this, and all of you who have been following us with this program, I really appreciate you sticking with us. We're, on the one hand, digging through what I think both Monsignor and I consider one of the most important books of early Christianity, but it's it's a, it's a big book, and, and uh, we'd like to jump way ahead to some— more juicier sections, Uh, but the the point is, uh, in our looking at the book two, um, thinking that this big section in which he's dealing in details with the Gnostics and what the Gnostics believe, and their really goofy tenets and how it affected them, that we thought, well, we could quickly get through that and get into... Well, the point is, as we look closely at the writing in that section by uh, St. Irenaeus, what we see gleaning from that are some of his attitudes, his convictions, his, essentially his doctrinal assumptions that, are, that form the foundation for how he fights against these false ideas. And some of these ideas are things we continue to take for granted as a part of our faith, but it's important to identify them to see the impact they had at that time. Um, And again, a reminder that he's writing in 175, so he's before before Cyprian, he's before the Council of Nicaea, he's before Augustine, he's before that whole group. So he's a very early voice. And as you mentioned earlier, Monsignor, he's one of the earliest systematic theologians of our faith. Is that right? Yes. Yes. Okay, so we're going to jump back into... Chapter two, or book two, excuse me, and we're going to begin on page 162, uh, and that's of John Keeble's translation. And we're going to look at a quote from uh, chapter 18, section two. And then I think I'll quickly, Monsignor, read us, or jump into. Chapter 24, section 3 and 4, and just put those two together. All right, Monsignor. So let me read first from uh, 162. And, And the operative word as I read this that I want you to hear is the word type. Type. He writes, For if they affirm the things done by the Lord to be types of those which are in the Pleroma, the type ought to be kept throughout, but they cannot suit to their desire to their device either. Her who was cured after eighteen years, or him who was cured after thirty-eight years. And it is altogether absurd and inconsistent to say that in some things the Savior kept the type, and in other things kept it not. And then I'll jump over to. Um, Chapter 24, Sections 3 and 4, on page 165. And it says, It is then an unreasonable thing, and altogether clownish, that the type should not be kept up in the lofty and more elegant portions of the law, while in the others... Should any number agree with what themselves say, they affirm those things to be types of what are in the Pleroma, whereas every number is set down in Scripture in many relations, so that whoever will may be able to make out by Scripture not only the repetition of 8 and then 10 and the 12, but any other, and may hold it as a type of the error he has devised, and that this is true, may admit of being proved out of Scripture by the number which is called five, in that it enters not at all into their argument, nor agrees with their invention, nor corresponds with any typical exhibition of the things which are in the playroom. All right, Monsignor, given your your background and, and all the Patristics what is he addressing what is the problem he's addressing in these two sections
1: I think I think Marcus the principal concern he has is that the gnostics are being highly selective about how they are working through the material in the gospels and they're only willing to accept those things that fit their preconceived uh, notions, these 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 number schemes they have. So when they find when they find numbers that don't fit, they they want to ignore those passages altogether. And um, and I I've heard I mean, in those two passages that you've read, what what Irenaeus is saying is if we accept your approach, you Gnostics, um then we have a defect of Christ, because in some ways he fits with the, um, uh, the types of the pleroma. He deals with them, and, and in other ways he doesn't. And um, so it's almost as if they're saying that Christ did not act as the perfect and obedient logos of, of the one God Father. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, so they, they really um, cut to the very, they cut at the very heart of our relationship with Christ by doing this.
0: This process that you talked about of them kind of choosing what fits and then ignoring what doesn't fit. And then if they find, all of a sudden they come across something that really, wow, look at this, you know, and then it's almost of an inspiration, you know, God put that there, to, to, in, but ignoring everything around it out of the context. Um, as I read through the the section, in my own background of being actively involved in ministry now for over 45 years and in many different churches, boy, have I seen this everywhere, even to today. It runs rampant. And you know, all you got to do is turn on TV and you'll see people doing sermons based on the way they've interpreted Scripture. Yes. And just as you said— they went to the scripture with a preconceived idea, and then often found the scripture that they could then use to promote their idea, and, and that's what you're saying. That's what the the Gnostics were doing all over. But I think,
1: Marcus, I think too. You know, especially for um, young people that are are studying theology and and biblical studies now, um, that uh, have to deal with the kind of the university. Um, academic Mm. approach to it it's really important even when I was you remember this too I can remember very vividly when I was a seminarian encountering this stuff and recognizing right away that people were playing these biblical scholars were playing fast and loose with the teachings of Jesus they they brought some external criterion to bear um, they were only willing to accept those parts of Jesus' teaching that fit their preconceived notions. Mainly, of course, it was all this social, uh, social stuff, uh,
0: social and moral stuff. Well, so, well, something that really comes find, in... yeah. I was going to say yeah, something. They found things. Oh, I'm sorry. I was just going to say to jump in with that idea: liberation theology is exactly what you're talking about.
1: Oh, absolutely. Or, or, you know, the way that Jesus words have been, um, changed or they're, uh, on deals dealing with morality, uh, or the organization of the, of the Christian community or the relationship of a husband and wife and marriage. Um, you know, I, all those things are,
0: I, th- I think I don't have the numbers, right. But I think, I think through the, particularly in the 19th century into the 20th century, there were thousands of missionaries, Protestant and Catholic, that went around the world carrying the gospel with the clear understanding that the reason they were going was for the salvation of souls. It was very clear. And then in about 1930, apparently, some well-recognized Christian leader, theologian, in some study sent out a report that basically said that the primary reason for missions needed to be the, the more social issues, the helping of the poor, uh, You know the things that are listed, for example, in Matthew 25, the feeding, the clothing, the and the... The statistics, the data shows that from that time on until now, a very high percentage, sadly, particularly of Catholic missions, has focused more on the social gospel. And our evangelical Protestants, evangelicals, fundamentalists, and Pentecostals continue to focus more on the gospel, but the mainline Protestant churches don't even have missions anymore— No, no. And again, there's this, what was happening in culture, found scriptures to come up with an idea that has really undercut the proclamation of the gospel around the world. And as I mentioned, the other thing that, to me, the operative word that jumped out at me in these is this issue of type and typology. And... That, that is a very important part of our, of our Catholic heritage as well as our Protestants are very much into typology. And it has a, a strong foundation because when, when the risen Lord was walking along the road of Emmaus and these two guys didn't recognize him and couldn't put two and two together, Scripture says that in uh, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted them in all the scriptures the things concerning him. Well, that's typology you know, what pointed to him, what met him. So we look at the kings and the prophets and Israel and, and Jerusalem and all these have typologies uh, that look forward, but one has to be careful. And what Irenaeus is talking about is just as you were mentioning that people take they can take anything to make it fit and say anything. So this is using Old Testament texts, pulling out of them an idea to confirm something you already believe, but ignoring a gazillion other texts that could say something else. And what they were saying is what Ernest was saying that uh, it isn't, it isn't faithful interpretation to choose some things that fit and they ignore the rest. There needs to be a balance on that. And, uh, so I, I wanted to point out that type because I know that typology, it's, it's important to me. I think it's an it's something actually that I, I think we, as modern Catholics, need to be more aware of and how the Old Testament uh, stories are a type of the, what we're going through in the church today. But we've got to make sure we do it within the teaching of the church. We've got to be careful and not lift ourselves up, which is what he gets to pretty soon, right, Monsignor? Lifting ourselves up. and. Yep. If we move on to the next section, which again is a long section now, I I would encourage you to look at section 25, chapters 25, sections 1 through 4, pages 168 and 170. He uses this really neat analogy, doesn't he, Monsignor? Yes. On the liar. Talk to us about that and maybe pick out some of the I don't know if you have some scriptures there of that section you want to pull out.
1: Oh, well, okay. So we, if we went to, um, page, let's see, did we, um, it's 168. Okay. Yeah. 168. There it is. Okay. Um, and then you marked off that, th- that section two. Yes. And that's one, maybe we should look at that on page 169. Okay. Um, yep let's see is that that is that where we are yeah yes, yeah okay.
0: 169 right
1: yeah um but in as much as the things which are made are various and many and although in respect of the whole creation they are well fitted and of good accordance yet as far as regards each one of them they are contrary one to another and out of harmony as the sound of the harp produces one consistent melody made up of many made up as it is of many and contrary sounds each having its proper interval um this being so the lover of truth must not be argued down on account of the wide intervals of the several sounds nor must he suspect them to be works of several artists and framers wow that one jumps out at me
0: <laughs>
1: nor you know uh, that you know you would say that scripture is just uh, a a, a library of many different writers, you know. Right, right, right. And as though one had arranged the sharper tones, another the more ample, a third the middle ones, but as it were only one, and he for the manifestation both of wisdom and righteousness, and of goodness and of bounty in the whole work. But those who hear the melody ought to praise and glorify the artist. Um, so, so I think that that metaphor he's using is um, contrary to the way the Gnostics look at the Creator and creation is a kind of um, they call it chaotic um, at some points. You know, it's a mess. Saint Irenaeus is saying the creation is a beautiful harmony, and if we're going to hear the sound properly we have to hear it in its harmonious mm. whole um, and not to pull you know one string out and just the way that that metaphor works i thought that was wonderful for those of us who have tried to learn to play uh, a stringed <laughs> instrument <laughs> that makes a lot of sense because <laughs> it can be pathetic when we're learning um, yeah, the... So I, 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 it's, it's this harmony of creation that is so absolutely critical um, in, in our appreciation of
0: of the Lord
1: yeah. as creator.
0: He, he has spoken earlier in the book about the importance of beginning with creator. And mm-hmm. if you begin with creator as the foundation, then things start making sense. If you lose that foundational assumption, then you, everything starts falling apart. And as, as they point out, they they have a problem with a, a good a perfect creator, and as they see an imperfect world, so they have to come up with all these other things. And uh, so there's not only, you know, a a a person that created our creator, then a person that created the creator, the creator, and you know, all these different pleromas. and and, the, but here they're talking about there's not that there was a committee that put it uh-huh. all together. And as you said, you know, the the 19th century, particularly the German theologians, so undercut the authority of Scripture by positing that there wasn't one spiritual author behind the whole book, but they started breaking everything up into, into ideas such that there was not one flowing idea through Scripture. Yes, we recognize there are different genres in Scripture. We, we There are wisdom books and historical books and poetry, and we recognize that. And they use different... We, we recognize that. But but it's not really like walking into a bookstore and seeing just random things on a shelf with no connection from one book to the next. And if you start looking at it individually, you could come up with that. You know, how, yeah. do, how does... Does Leviticus fit with Ephesians? You know, I mean, so I mean, how do you... But that's why he emphasizes the creator. Recognize the unity first, and then everything will fit into the harmony of the, of the one message of God.
1: You know, with, I, I was struck too, just before we go too far, yes. far beyond that first section too, um, you quoted uh, that in section one, uh, with great wisdom and diligence. Yes. All things have. Um, I'm just trying to find this here in the book here. Um, On page
0: 168?
1: Yeah, it should be 168 here.
0: Yes. Yeah, section. Uh, oh. It's
1: just I think it's a little different translation. That's yes. what's going
0: on here. Yeah, 25.1. 25, 25.1. 25, yeah. It goes, um, But shall anyone say to this, What then doth all oh, okay. come in vanity, is all at random, but both in the assigning of names and in the election of the apostles and in the working of the Lord and in the forming of the things which are made, we shall say to them, Not so, but with great wisdom and care. Exactly arranged and adorned are all things which God hath made, both anciently and whatever in the last times his word hath wrought. And they ought to connect them, not with the number of 30, but with their proper subject matter or reason. Is that the section you were thinking about?
1: That's the one that I was, yeah. Yeah. And it was, I thought that was a remarkable thing, how St. Irenaeus here is making a calling for a reason. You know, he's appealing to reason. Yes. Um, and that, uh, you know, that the Gnostics, that they, they are irrational at, at a fundamental level. And he's saying that the use of reason, the exercise of reason can help us, um, it can help us sort our way through all this sort of thing. I thought that was a remarkable, yeah. um, point there.
0: An affirmation. That it's not
1: all, yeah, he's actually... He actually sees reason and revelation um, are able to they work hand-in-hand hand here. Um, if, if we if we have a reasonable approach to reality, it will help us to make sense of the revelation.
0: There is so much good stuff in here.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that really was a wonderful I, point. I,
0: so. I'm just saying that because I'm trying to figure out how we can fit it into... A section. Um, the uh, it's section three of that chapter uh-huh. twenty-five on page sixty-one, sixty-nine at the bottom. And if so, be a man find not the principle of all that he searches into. Let him consider that man is infinitely less than God, as having but in part received grace, and as not yet equaling and resembling his Maker. And as unable, like God, to try and understand all things. Yea, by how much he that is unmade and always the same is above him who was made today and received a beginning to his existence, by so much must he fall short of his Maker in respect of knowledge, in tracing the principles. Of all things. And then he jumped on the beginning of four. Keep therefore the station of thine own knowledge, and do not, as ignorant of things truly good, uh, ascend higher than God himself, for he cannot be overpassed. Neither do thou inquire what is above the Creator, for thou wilt find nothing. You know, this presumed prideful wisdom.
1: I know. And yes, for him, for our saint, Humility is needed so that we can comprehend truth. And what they were doing was, in effect, putting themselves over, sitting in judgment on the, the creator of the universe.
0: And sitting in judgment of revelation. You know, if we sit in judgment of the very thing we believe as revelation from God, what's left? Yeah. Uh, what's left? Good point. Good point. And we, we have... A, you know, people look at the mess in our culture today, and a lot of that is they deny the reality of a creator. They don't begin there. They don't they don't recognize authority. They don't recognize the the veracity of revelation. And when you deny all that, you're really putting yourself above it. You've judged it. I declare that wrong. I declare that un, unreasonable. I declare that unnecessary. I declare that untrue. You've lifted yourself up above the creator. Uh And and I love it. Neither do thou inquire what is above the Creator, for thou wilt find nothing. Right? They were trying to have something before the Creator. They kept going back, and he says, You you put yourself above it, and there's nothing, because he is the beginning.
1: (laughs) That's right. And yeah, in in section four, he goes on to make that point that um, madness is what awaits them if they pursue this line of inquiry. But he. You know, he was just, it's so simple how he, in section three, how he makes the argument. Um, consider, we ha- have a beginning in time. Our creator is timeless. So how can we, uh, how can we even presume to um, behave as though we're co-eternal with the creator and can, you know, yeah. judge, judge, or, or make any kind of statements about um, about what happened at the very beginning that weren't revealed to us um in divine scripture
0: whenever i think of the image the old testament image of the potter and the clay Mm -hmm. i always remember uh, the far side uh, cartoon of god making snakes and he's just rolling the he's rolling the clay in his hands these are simple yeah and you know the the pot telling the potter is what the, he's talking about the pot telling the potter how it ought to be done and uh, he's just expanding on that all right monsignor now what i when i look at the next section beginning with chapter 26 right all the way through all the way through page, um, all the way through the end of chapter 28. So, really, from page 170 through 180. Mm-hmm. You know, here, here we were thinking there's not a lot in here. I have that entire section. Almost highlighted.
1: Yeah, I, I noticed. yeah it's incredible. Yeah,
0: there. And the the reason I have it highlighted, and I, I I almost would encourage those listening, if you're really interested, to think through all of this, because um, I believe that Irenaeus was saying something extremely important at this time in the history of the church that, unfortunately, was not listened to later. yeah, Um, He's repeating what Paul had said. In fact, he might have quoted that section from Paul. I I have to look here, where Paul was telling Timothy, uh, warning Timothy about getting caught up in words getting caught up in words and and particularly in this section what he's calling his he's he's writing to other bishops and priests but he's also calling the gnostics to to humbly humbly recognize that there are things that god knows that we don't and don't presume to know them, And as soon as we do that, we go beyond what has been revealed. We enter a danger zone. And if you will, that's the whole book of what he's talking about. He's trying to show these people that all they all entered into the danger zone. And some of them went insane, you know, as you're talking about. They, they, they just got crazy. Um... You know, he says if you go go into the danger zone where God hasn't revealed and you presume to know, and maybe to argue with somebody else who has another opinion, there you are arguing in areas of thought that are beyond our ability to know. You're at each other's throats arguing over something that God hasn't revealed to us. And we're reminded of that verse in Ephesians that says, Speak the truth in love. Both have to be important. You want to speak the truth, but it has to be balanced with charity. And what too often happened, not just in this time, but happened in the 3rd century, happened in the 4th century of the church, where charity was lost for the gaining of truth. That's it.
1: That's right. And Marcus, would it be okay just to read a few verses as, as... um, of well, at just the beginning of chapter twenty-six, there on page yes. one seventy, and I'll, and then I tell you why I, I wanted to, be a little. I just wanted to reflect about something in my early life that Please. so much. Please fun. do, Monsignor, Please do. Um. So, um, it, the ch- chapter twenty-six, uh, section one begins with these words, on page one seventy. It is better and more profitable. To be simple and scantily learned and by love to approach unto god then while we seem full of learning and experience to be found blasphemers against our own lord inventing another god and father now we recognize we recognize what's going on there so then he he then um quotes uh saint paul uh in first corinthians knowledge puffs up, but but charity builds up. Knowledge puffeth up, but charity edifieth. Now there can be no greater puffing up than this, for a man to think himself better and more perfect than him who made and framed him, and gave him the breath of life, and granted him this very thing to be. The, my, my reflection or my mem- my uh, recollection was back in, um, it was back in, uh, it would have been in uh, 1980. I had just been ordained a priest in the Church of England um, for the Diocese of Massachusetts. And my first homily, um, the, I was asked to do this first homily at Brazenos College, Oxford. And that was the reading for the day uh, from 1 Corinthians 8. (laughs) And I just spoke about uh, knowledge uh, puffs up, but but charity builds. And I was amazed. I remember the Dons came afterward, and and one of them, who later became a dear, dear friend of mine, said, "Um, do you have any idea how revolutionary that sounds here? (laughs) (laughs) And I was really impressed with how, you know, these men that were, um, you know, far more brilliant than I ever was or could hope to be, um, were were struck down by those words of Saint Paul here. And here we have Irenaeus, you know, quoting him in the, much the same context too. The precept, the the you know, the arrogance of the of the Gnostics thinking they can pull this off on their own terms, and how much better it is just to be a simple Bible-believing Christian.
0: Well, I mean, if you will, take a step back and hear this whole Gnostic culture could be compared with a university culture of any modern times, any of the universities in modern times. And you're you're hearing, I mean, I'm sorry, just the very idea of defunding police (laughs) is so absurd. Yeah, I get the other issues, but that trajectory of an idea, given this problem this problem, this problem, so the solution, get rid of the police. Excuse me, that, that doesn't work. And the idea that we can actually think that kind of reminds me of what Irenaeus is trying to fight against. Guys, what you're talking about is stupid. Yeah, there are, there are needs for renewal. There are needs to get rid of the sin of racism. There's, we know that all that. We all say yes, we can agree with that. But that is an answer, the absurdity of that. Irenaeus says, better oh. than is it, as I said before, For one to know nothing at all, know not so much as one single cause why any of the things that are made was made, but to believe God, and so that they should abide in love, than to be puffed up by that kind of knowledge and fall from love which quickens the man. Better to search out nothing for knowledge save Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who was crucified for us, then by subtle questionings and frivolous talk, to fall into impiety. Monsignor, that describes what we've seen happen in so many churches. You know, the the mainline denominations. Mm -hmm. Um, I I don't want to pick out any, but... I think in your former denomination, there were some bishops that were pretty far out there. Yeah, um, uh, some of
1: them, of course, were part of the—they created the Myth of God Incarnate book, you know, and that was one that I remember. J.T. Robinson's book, yeah, yeah, God uh,
0: is—yeah, I forget the name of his book. It wasn't God is Dead, but it's something like that. I mean, it's a trajectory, and Irenaeus was warning about this. Early in the church, and you know, we started this series with the with the quote of Newman: "To be deep in history is to cease to be Protestant." But I've, in kind of a ornery way, I've reworded that: "To be deep in history is is dangerous because it can be. It, it can be because you start seeing." The details of, of what really happened, and and sometimes our Christian brothers and sisters in the early century of the church were on fire and, and good, and sometimes they weren't. And often, you know,
1: Marcus, I, you know, I this is something um, that students, um if, like students of patristics, are going to have to learn this right at the beginning. We come to uh, uh, materials to texts that are so different in some ways from you know where we are and the way we think today, and the temptation is to sit in judgment on them. You know that that we have all the critical faculties to say you know where they're right, where they're wrong, and where you know they make nonsense and all that sort of thing. And I remember, as I was a, beginning my graduate studies in, in patristics, having to grapple with this, and even my my supervisor gave me a hard time about it. Um, but I, uh, there's a lot of things I'm, I feel like I didn't do very well in my life, but one thing that I feel like I made the right choice on, I remember saying, I love these fathers. Yeah. Yeah, I love them. I want to be in relationship with them, and um, and then you then you know you remember Saint Paul's words about charity. Um, and you you seek to establish a relationship with them, and so you you let them speak. You let the text. Lewis used to talk about how important it is just to let the text stand on its own, and. Anyway, I won't. Go well, no, on.
0: I agree with that completely. When I meant by to become so deep I get in history. Very well, I, but I, I agree with that. Don't. When I say to become deep in history is dangerous. In it's like most modern Christians, if they know the Council of Nicaea at all, all they know about it is the creed they recite on Sunday, and most people have, don't know why those phrases are in. But every single one of those phrases represents a conciliar conclusion to a huge debate in which men, and it was almost all men, were at each other's throats, sometimes on how to spell a word, because the yeah. putting of an I in a, in a Greek that, word made all the difference in the world. That iota, that little iota, yes. Yeah, yeah between homoousius and homoousius. And, um, I mean, there's a huge history behind that and what it's come to help me to appreciate is I'm starting to see that there were men of integrity on both sides of the argument and sometimes history paints it more black and white than it really was. And, um, but, but Irenaeus is trying to, to say, well, okay, we, we've got good intentions all across the board here, but even given that, there's still to be a criteria for determining what's true. It's not just good intentions. It's true, and that's what he's pointing out. If you think you're smarter than God, well, right there, we've got a problem. <laughs> um, or that... You know, or recognizing that there are some things that only God knows that we don't know, and there's a reason for that, so don't go beyond that. Be careful. At the bottom of page 171, at the end of section 2, he points out something else. Men being always eager in such things to be thought to have discovered something beyond their teachers. I mean, that continues to today. Oh my, yes, yeah. Uh, one thing I noticed when I was studying the Reformation uh, on my journey to the church is that there wasn't just one Reformer in the 16th century Reformation. It wasn't just Luther. There was Luther. There was um, Bull- Bullitzer. There was uh, you know uh, Zwingli, the Menno Simons. There was Calvin. There was uh, Melanchthon. And what's interesting is we all know that the spark, the person that sparked the Reformation, we would say the first of them was Luther. I mean, there were people before him, and there were other reasons, but Luther. And the only reason Calvin had the courage to do what he did is because Luther did it. Same thing with with Bullinger and Zwingli. But when you read them, they don't give credit to Luther. They don't give much credit to Luther. With them, they were the ones they were the ones that broke free. And they'll say, well, not history says, no, 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 no. Luther was before you. And uh, so it's got to get to it here. Everybody's got to be the, the, the initiator. Better than. In fact, in scholarship, that often is, you know, you got to come up with something new. If you're going to publish and you're going to yeah. have a, it's always got to be new. And uh, the trajectory of that is, as you pointed out, craziness. Another it does. It's just, yeah, it
1: just it it doesn't advance the cause of knowledge very much at all.
0: Here's another section, Monty. I'm going to read. It's chapter uh, 17, 1. and um, I'd like to read this because I think this still applies.
1: He wrote. Okay, and we're so we're
0: on page, page one seventy um, two. One sixty okay. two. One seventy two. Seventy
1: two. Okay. Oh, so you mean, at 20, you're in 26 here. 20, chapter 26? 27. Yeah.
0: Chapter 27, bottom of page 172. Got it. Okay. Okay. Um, the sound and safe and cautious and tr- truth-loving mind, whatsoever things God hath put within the power of man and has submitted to our knowledge, in those it will thoroughly exercise itself with all readiness, and in them will make progress by such daily exercise facilitating its own improvement. And these are partly such as fall under our very sight, partly such as are openly and unambiguously expressed in terms of the divine scriptures. And therefore parables ought to be expounded by things not in themselves ambiguous. For so both he who solves the question runs no risk in doing so, and the parables will receive like solution from all, And the body of truth remains entire, its members harmoniously arranged and no shock incurred. But as to the connecting with solutions of parables inventing by each man according to his will, what is neither openly said nor set before one's eyes, why, in that way the rule of truth will be found with no one. But according to the number of expounders of parables, so many truths shall we see contending with each other. And setting up contradictory doctrines, much like the questions of the heathen philosophers, and so on this plan, a man will be always seeking, but will never find, because he will have cast away the very rule of discovery. Now, the line that jumped out at me was: "According to the number of expounders of parables, so many truths shall we see contending with each other." And that's
1: yeah. That we we all have that experience. How many, how many um, commentaries on on your bookshelves that yeah. are <laughs> going so many different directions?
0: I mean, it's really it's bizarre. And now we have the uh, internet. I mean, you really can see take any one verse and look at thirty commentators, and they're all over the place. Uh, what
1: know. I you know, Marcus? What I what as you began that chapter what 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 I had really marked down was er, Irenaeus is here basically making a very simple argument that the divine scriptures are the are the primary means by which we can know God. Yeah. Now he's maybe it's not right to say this is sola scriptura, but it's prima scriptura. <laughs> I mean, that's that's where that's the fons at Orgo, the where it all begins, and and it's the daily study of Scripture that he um, he's encouraging here, so that we can grow in the truth.
0: I I couldn't agree more. I have to say that's one of the issues that so awakened me to the importance of this very book, that Irenaeus, at one seventy five is thoroughly overflowing. He's a reservoir of Scripture. And the entire canon of Scripture is represented here. I mean, there are a couple books he doesn't, but it's all here. The entire New Testament is quoted, except I think two books. He doesn't quote James and one of the Johns or something. Everything else he quotes, it's all there. And as you said... Sola scriptura basically means I don't need anything else. That's not what he says by any means. No. But on the other hand, he holds Scripture up as the ultimate touchstone of truth. I mean, how how you can even know the apostolic deposit of faith? In fact, is it Irenaeus? I think it is Irenaeus that said, if we didn't have the tradition... No, no. Or does he say, if we didn't have it written down, we would have the tradition? It's one where when he talks about the importance yeah. of both, but the supremacy of the
1: scriptures. And and, and um, just keep in mind, too, if, if you were a serious student and lover of the Bible in the second century, you wouldn't probably be able to have afforded... Um, a, a codex, a, a, you know, a, a collection of the texts of scripture. And so what has what always humbled me is what these serious young Christian people were doing was memorizing scripture. I, that, yeah. In the early fathers, that just jumps out at you. How, how deeply that impressed them to meet people that had committed scripture to, mem- to memory. And it was always there when they needed
0: it. I'm going to point to one more section, Father uh, uh, Monsignor, as we close. There's so much here, I think, that deserves reflection. Chapter 28, section 1, page 174, if you will. I don't think I have this on my sheet that I gave you, but uh, okay. But I, but I think it's good. He goes this way, having therefore the very rule of truth, and the reason I, I again that phrase, the rule of faith, the rule of truth, has very significant importance for Irenaeus. The yes. rule of truth. So having therefore this very rule of truth and the witness concerning God openly set forth, we ought not by solutions of questions still swerving away farther and farther to cast out the firm and true knowledge of God. Rather, it becomes us directing our resolution of difficulties by this outline while we practice ourselves in inquiry concerning the mystery and ordinance of the living God, to grow also in love of him, who did and doth so great things for us, and never to fall away from that conviction whereby it is most expressly declared that this alone is truly God and Father. Who hath created this world and formed man and bestowed upon his creation the gift of increase and calleth it from its lower conditions to the greater things which are with him, even as he both brings out the infant conceived in the womb into the sun's light and lays up the wheat in the garner when he has strengthened it in the stalk. Now is it one and the same creator who both framed the womb and created the sun and one and the same Lord. Who both gave the stock growth, and increased and multiplied the wheat, and prepared the garner. I think we'll just stop there. I mean, he. I, I like the, the the couple things there. Of course, his emphasis on scripture, the rule of truth, but and his emphasis on this. I love the the evolutionists that look at different things. You know that the same kind of DNA as in a monkey and the same kind of DNA as a human being. And so, well, they must have come naturally together rather than seeing it's the same fingerprints of the creator. And that's what he's saying. The same creator that made the womb created the sun. Yeah. That's his emphasis. But there's also that need for both the knowledge the rule of faith, the rule of truth, the mystery and the ordinance of the Lord, but also the need to grow in the love of him. Knowledge and love. Again, there we mm-hmm. have speaking the truth in
1: love. You know, There before we yes. pass on, there, you had suggested Pointed out also um, in chapter twenty-seven, too. Yeah. Um, on page one seventy-three, a, a passage that I, I want to just okay uh, say a word on. it. Uh, see, here we are in the this trend. Since then, all this is on page middle of one seventy-three. Yes. Since then, all the scriptures, both the prophecies and gospels, may be heard openly and unequivocally and alike by all though not all believe so even uh, someone that is coming to the faith that's not there yet can read the scripture and make some sense out of it he's saying I that jumped out at me as well yeah Um, and uh, I've you know that is one, I think that's one thing that really sets Irenaeus against his opponents here. When he talks about divine revelation, um, he says it's public, mm. it's not secret. It has been declared to the world and it it is intelligible to anyone. Um, and they can understand it if they give their heart to it, but even at the very basic level, there is an intelligibility there. And I just thought that, that just jumped out at me as um, one of his great principles when he talks about um, about
0: revelation. You know, I was thinking of a it's parallel. Public. I was thinking of a parallel today, Monsignor, in that there are people that think that there is such a contradiction between faith and science that you have to keep them separate. And the Catholic Church believes not at all. That which is what we find true in science is true. And we shouldn't be be afraid at all to examine truth. It's public. It's out there. Examine it. You you do it correctly. I mean, he talks about, oh boy, if I can find it quickly because of time. He says, um, oh, where did he say that thing about having the right attitude when you approach it? Uh, the sound and safe and cautious and truth-loving mind, whosoever things God hath put within the power of man and hath submitted to our knowledge, and those who will thoroughly exercise itself with all readiness, and then them will make progress by such daily exercise, facil- facilitating its own improvement. That's the beginning of chapter 27. In other words, when you, it's, it's, you go at it with the right mind, the right heart. And you can look at science and not be afraid. There's nothing there that's going to undercut my faith because it's of God. It's the same fingerprints. It's public, as you were pointing out. Yeah, yeah. Necessity. All right, let's pause there. We'll pick up again next week with, again, chapter two. Uh, I'm thinking, we're, where are we beginning next week? I think we're beginning on... Uh, oh, we're picking up right where we left off, so... Uh, so we'll be somewhere in chapter 27 then? Yep, yep, yep. yep. Maybe 28. Okay. I think we're maybe we're 28. 28, 28. We'll, that's we'll pick right. up yeah. there. Okay. Monsignor, could you close us with a word of prayer?
1: Yes, of course. Okay. Very simple little prayer um, for the Feast of St. Irenaeus, which is coming up on June 28th. Oh, neat. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Almighty God, you upheld your servant Irenaeus with strength to maintain the truth against every blast of vain doctrine. Keep us, we pray, steadfast in your true religion, that in constancy and peace we may walk in the way that leads to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever, amen.
0: Thank you, Monsignor. Thank you for joining thank us. Thank you so much. All of you who are with us, thank you very much for uh, walking beside us through this. We'd love to know your thoughts and comments and look forward to picking picking up again next week in uh, book two of Against Heresies. God bless. See you next week.